Hi, everybody. This is Samantha and NUL. Um, we're going to be discussing true crime cases, and we're going to be letting you know true facts and also be giving our own opinions on the matter that is occurring at that precise time. All right. Yes. So today's case is about Angela uh, Samato. Samato. Um, sorry about that. And anything we do say is our own opinion. Do not take it personal. Um, and these are all the facts that we do give were provided um, where you can find it on like Dateline of the podcast. They're basic scenarios, basic information we've received from other places. So like I said, Please do not feel disrespected or in any form of way um, offended by what we say. Um, like I said, this is our opinion. These are how we feel, how we think. Um, if you think the same way, join us. You know, continue to listen on to us. We will have further more cases um, later on down the line as we grow um, in this podcast. Today is our first day. So if you see any kind of like little hiccups, just bear with us as we are trying to get into the swing of everything. Um, I, my name is Samantha and this is NUL and I'm gonna give the case over to NUL so he can go ahead and explain what happened. Okay, so this is the case of the rape and murder of Angela Angie Samorta. Um, little backstory on Angie. She was a bubbly type, center of the, the room. The party didn't start until she got there type of person. Um, and with that, of course, she had a lot of guys that were attracted to her, that found her to be, you know, beautiful because she was beautiful, but she was also someone that commanded attention and they loved that about her. That being said, um, I guess we're gonna start right away with what happened and what they started and all that. Because I think the most important part about this is what happened and what happened, with, what happened to her and where the cops kind of went astray a little bit. So anyway, starting right away, um, on Friday, October 12th, 1984. Um, Samana Samoda, I'm going to call her Angie because it's just easier for me. Um, Angie went out with two friends, Kadala, which was the last, the last name of the girl, and Russell Buchanan. Um, so, um, when uh, Angie went out, she was on a black silk jumpsuit with black pumps. Um, her boyfriend at the time, McCall, testified um, that Angie had invited him, but he was so busy with his construction business and managing projects and all that, he was getting up too early and he basically did not, you know, said no. Um, so Angie, Kadala, and Buchanan 
all went out that night. It was like a big night. It, it was like Friday night lights, as long with um, like big bar scenes, like people went bar hopping the weekend. Was, yeah. So, you know. Um, so they went out, they, they went to a few restaurants, a few places, a few bars, a few clubs. They, they went out, they, they were not staying in one place for very long. Um, make sure I got this information correctly because so Angie drove Kadala and Buchanan in her car um, to Bennigan's and then to Stud Baker's a nightclub oh. um, so yeah Then as the evening went on and you know they kept going to these different places, um, Angie called her boyfriend, um, Ben McCall, and asked him to meet her at the real room. Um, they, the real room was a club with members only um, back room. Um, he declined again. He said that he arranged for Angie, Kadal, and Buchanan to get into the real room using his membership. So he had to be kind of a big deal to get exclusive membership to this back room, whatever. Um, yeah. So an employee of the real room said that Angie got into the club because she knew him through business. He also stated that there was not a call from Ben that night asking him to let Angie into the club, which is kind of suspicious because if Ben set it up, why is he saying that he set it up? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, they left the rear room um, Angie and Kadala both chopped off um, Russell Buchanan off at his apartment. According to um, Russell, he arrived at his house between 1 and 1.30. Then Angie and Kadala went to Angie's apartment in order to pick up um, Kadala's curling iron. Kadala had originally planned to spend the night at Angie's, but then decided not to do so because Angie's was leaving to, for a football game too early the next morning. Okay. Um, so because of that, Angie drove Kadala to her, to her dorm and dropped her off. Kadala says that she arrived to her house between 12.45 and 1.30. But Russell said that he arrived at his house at 1 to 1.30. So there's already kind of like a time problem, in my opinion. How far did they live from each other, though? I know they were in the same town, but exactly how far, I'm not sure. 
I know the furthest one that lived away was um, Ben, which is about 45 minutes. Okay. But if, but my, my, how it's, how it's, what kind of make, makes me think it's kind of weird that um, Russell said he arrived at his house at 1 and one thirty, and he was the first one dropped off. But then Kadala says she was dropped off by between 12.45 and 1.30. So either she was too drunk to know what time exactly she got to her house or anyway. Um, so according to, to everybody that saw um, Angie, Angie, she was not drunk. She was not intoxicated at all. Um, they were comfortable with her driving home. Um, according to Ben McCall, at 1.30, a knock on his, on his front door will come up. It was um, Angie on her way home. So she visited Ben, took the, the drive to see him, woke him up, kind of to say goodnight, that she was safe, kind of, you know, normal boyfriend and girlfriend thing. Um, McCall stated that he knew it was 1.30 in the morning because he looked at his clock when he rolled over in bed. Out of the three, he's the one that knew exactly what time Angie got to his house. Okay. So they only, they only talked for, for a couple minutes, nothing, you know, and Angie basically stopped by to say, hey, listen, I had this great time and you can come with me, kind of like rub it in. <laughs> Typical girlfriend thing. Yeah. Um, ben described, Ben McCall described the conversation as playful type teasing. So, okay. <clears throat> now this is where it gets interesting for me. Um, Ben McCall says about 15 minutes after she left, about 1.45, Ben received a phone call from Angie and testified that she was acting strange. Um, the first thing that she said uh, was talk to me. The conversation was disjointed. Um, Angie seemed nervous and was rambling. And he could hear noises in the background. Ben twice asked her what the noises were, and Angie eventually explained that she had let a man into the condominium to use the bathroom and telephone. Young that was girl, this a man that she knew? I'm, I'm guessing. We'll find out. We're gonna find out later, but I'm guessing that at that moment it was somebody she that because she let him in. Yeah. You know, so she must have seen him somewhere. And she was the type, bubbly type that she got along with everybody. So she, she's not the type of person that gets, um, that's skeptical of anybody. Everybody's a friend to her, you know, like until they do her wrong, basically. Um, excuse me. Um, so a few moments later, 
Ben heard Angie tell someone, oh, the bathroom is down the hall. After talking some more, Angie asked Ben if there was a payphone, excuse me, if there was a payphone at a nearby convenience store. And he said, I'm sure there is. Um, Angie relayed that the information Relayed that information to the man in the condo, whoever that guy was. But Ben never heard him say anything back. Um, at that point, Angie told him that she would call him back and hung up the phone. Now, as a man myself, if I know someone's in my girlfriend's apartment, and she's not really giving me information. She hanging up the phone is gonna freak me the heck out. Like I want to know what's going on, and I'll probably call her back. Well, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, me being a female myself, I would be honest. If I have a strange man in my house, and whether I knew the person or not, it's late at night. Um, I was just partying, having fun with my friends. I'm probably a little bit, you know, on the tipsy side, if you want to say. Um, mm -hmm. And me, with me feeling the fact that I have to call my boyfriend um, while this person is in my house, I would go and never hang up the phone until that individual left because right. I'm not going to feel secure with that person being there, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree. That that's something fishy to me. Mm -hmm. It was to me too when I read it. Um so of course Ben McCall became concerned when Angie never called back. Um Ben called her several times and when she did not answer he joked to her condo. Um Okay, so the, the time between um, Angie's house and Ben's house was about eight to 10 minutes. So okay. during the eight to 10 minutes it took him to drive there, he called Angie repeatedly with the cell phone in his truck, but failed to reach her. When I read that, it's 1984. Cell phones wasn't readily available like they are right now. I later find out that he, owns a business mm -hmm. and he's kind of like a major thing in the construction project. You know, he has his own project and everything. So if there are phones available, Ben can afford them. Yeah. You know? Remember back in those days, that's when they had those big, you know, dinosaur Rex type of phone yes. in the car. Yeah. And it was just like, dude, what? You know? Yeah. Those, um, those phones um, kind of were like, What's the name of they it? They were for the rich guys, being honest. <laughs> yeah, um, but there was a show um, in the 80s and 90s, um, Say by the Bell, Zach's phone. You remember when Zach was oh, such a rich guy? That type of, he had that type of phone, anyway. Um, but anyway, after trying to call her on his cell phone, he could not reach her. Um, mm -hmm. When Ben arrived at, arrived and saw Angie's car, he ran to her front door 
located on the second floor of the condominium building and knocked, but she did not answer. Discovering the front door locked, Ben ran to the back door, but it was also locked. He called um, Angie's phone again and could hear it ringing in the kitchen. Ben start, um, stated that when he heard no other sound from Angie's apartment, he drove to the convenience store that they had discussed earlier. Angie was not there. Um, so Ben returned to her apartment. At 2.17 a.m., he called the police to report the unusual activity. So this is, you're talking about like 45, 47 minutes between when he last spoke to her, that he she went back to her house and the call that the suspicious guy was in her house that nobody knew. That's a long time. Very long time. Okay. Um, officers Ken Pajenska and Janice Crowder took the call and met Ben in the parking lot of Angie's complex at 2.40 a.m. McCall told the officers that Angie had gone out that night with friends and that after returning home, she called him and was acting strange. Uh, he also informed the officers that Samora had a man you know, in her condo, yeah. kind of giving him, giving the, the same information that, that he knew uh, that I already had discussed. Um, yeah, so told her about the guy in the condo that he used the restroom and phone. Um, and that after calling Ben, she had abruptly hung up and did not answer her phone. So the officer, Bojenska, testified after yeah. knocking on Samora's door, on Angie's door, and because there was no apparent exigent circumstances, he directed Crowder to obtain a key to Samara's apartment from the property manager. Um, using that key, the officer entered the condo through the front door. So I'm guessing the exigent circumstances is they don't see nobody, no, uh, the door ajar or like somebody didn't try to break in uh, yeah. through the yeah. door. So like, okay, so I guess, you know, so, all right. So you probably took it as, okay, let's just do a wellness check. Um, Cause right. from what I also read was that Ben sounded not like panic on the 911 phone call, but kind of kind of like monotone, relaxed. Um, so I would have taken it, if I was an officer, I would have taken it as, okay, I'm just probably just doing a wellness check just to shut this, you know, boyfriend up, get him right. out of my hair. Right, all right. So um, the officer, Bajenska, um, said that once, that one of the first things that he noticed upon entering the condo was a single black pump on the floor. She wore a black tracksuit and pumps, black pumps. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this quickened his pulse. 
because he did not know anybody who takes just one shoot and leaves it there. Um, Carter searched the kitchen but found no signs of Angie. At the same time, Bajenska continued to the bedrooms and he discovered Angie's body in the second bedroom. Okay. She was naked, covered in blood, and lying face up with her eyes open. Um, the lower half of her body was hanging off the bed, off the end of the bed, excuse me. Um, the officer checked for a pulse and found none. Um, he later testified that he remembered the scene like it was last week, because unlike any other assaults and murders he had worked, the crime looked like it was the result of evil preying on innocents. Um, the officer continued his search of the candle in case the attacker was still present. And doing so, he was discovered smudge of blood on his light, on the light switch, blood on the shower curtain, and some residue of blood in the bathtub, where it looked like somebody had washed some blood off. Um, the attack was no longer there, but um, but Jessica told Crowder about his discovery of Samori's body, and he radioed headquarters and called for an ambulance. Uh, meanwhile, Carter went to the bedroom. She testified that Angie's body looked angelic, like a young person that I could relate to. She also testified later that Angie's eyes were wide open and she still remembered Angie's blue eyes to this day. When asking about the wounds suffered by Angie, uh, yeah, the wounds suffered by Angie, Carter stated that it appeared that her heart had been cut out. So this, this is a very gruesome um, yeah, okay. crime scene. Uh, it's like, wow. Well, like, it's I also, uh -huh. go ahead. Go ahead. So like, in some reports that I read, they basically said like her heart, like majority of the stab wounds was around the heart area where right. it because of all the i think there was like what 17 or 18 stabs um yes. it was basically like the heart kind of was out there exposed yes i know like some case some reports said that it was it was cut up because of all the stabbing um others just said that it was it was because of the in, um the stabbing being so brutal, it was just basically sitting out there uh, to be seen. Yeah, because um, in one of the um, podcasts, they, it's, how I took it was the last stab wound in the heart when he pulled out the knife, whoever this mysterious guy is, um, kind of the heart came out with it. Ooh. And yeah, so because he had stabbed it so many times in the heart, I guess one was the when the one that went right through. I, I'm guessing, and it, because the, like the officer said, it looked like it was on top of, like it was laying on top of her chest. Also, um, 
not that I, no crime scene or any crime story that I've ever heard of. Um, can you see, or do you feel like the person that's dead is angelic? Usually it's a lot of blood, it's gruesome more than angelic. Which posed the question to me, could he have staged her that way? Because that's how he saw her. Because the eyes were open. Usually, I know there's a lot of cases where the eyes are open. But that bright blue eyes and the way the officer said that she looked angelic, I'm like, kind of look, you know, that's not normal, a typical way of describing a crime scene. Yeah, that that's that has a creepy and it makes the case a lot more creepy um yes. than what it than what it already is. Mm -hmm. Um you know, knowing the fact that maybe this person staged her body um to look a certain way, to be right. positioned a certain way, um maybe it was, you know, sexually motivated because maybe that was he needed her to be a certain um way for him to get off on this you know yeah yeah, yeah. um so of course the ambulance comes in um and announced that she's dead duh um and then, of course, everybody comes out. Um, the detectives start coming out, and then so the evidence that they that they have. Uh, so Detective Sparks, which I guess got got the case, obviously, um, testified that there was no signs of forced entry. The back door was deadbolted. The front door had been locked. Um, the sliding glass door was intact and locked. Um, he testified that. As far as he knew, McCall did not have a set of keys to the condo at all. And Ben, ben McCall testified to the same. Um, Sparks' father stated that he could not remember the locking mechanism on the front door, but he acknowledged that it could have been the kind of lock that locks automatically or with just a turn of the knob when the door is shut. Um, he also investigated the possibility of somebody climbing in, um, that, that an individual individual could climb the tree by Samara's, um, Angie's porch and then enter through the sliding glass door. Um, he testified that he was able to lift the sliding glass door off his track to open, but he was not sure how someone will get it back on track if in a hurry kind of dismisses that. You could get it off yeah. track, but you can't put it back like it was locked from the beginning. Um, he also noted that there was no knife, that, that the knife was missing from um, Angie's kitchen knife set. And another detective, Linda Crum, testified that the murder weapon was never found. Angie's telephone was on the kitchen counter and and the medic examiner um, testified that it appeared that the telephone had been wiped clean. Um, 
next on next to the telephone, a necklace was on top of Angie's black purse. So the keys was nearby. So it didn't look like it was anything really suspicious about the crime scene. Like the only thing that was missing was the murder weapon. And him, whoever this was, cleaned themselves up in the bathtub, bathroom sink type of thing. Um, so then uh, Billy Sheen, a member of the PES, So I got a question. Yes. Now, from what you're you're so far explaining is, it sounds like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like whoever this individual is saw her go into her apartment, saw she was by herself, and decided, okay, you know, maybe I can go ahead and do the thing to you know, either rape or whatever. We all know in this case, eventually she is raped. She was yes. raped and then murdered. Um, yeah. But because it sounds like he took the knife from her house, that means his intention originally was not to murder. Correct. His intention was probably just the rape itself. Now, maybe she fought him and that's where everything came into play because yeah. she sounds like a very smart, bright, you know, um, individual. Yeah. Um, so she probably gave up a fight um, mm -hmm. to not just be a victim at right. the long run in that hopes, you know, maybe I could fight him and avoid the whole conflict. Um but yeah. unfortunately, as we can tell, we know what happened. Yeah. Um, I put it like this. If I was going to kill someone, I would bring my own knife. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, hey, I'm just going to go in there and get something that she has and kill her. You know, so it, it definitely sounds like it was more of a wanting to rape her. And then because she fought so much, she's like, now I got to kill her. That's how it sounded to me. Um, so the, the I started reading that information because I thought it was um, important to the case. And the the problem the problem that I now have is that the police eventually have four people. Yeah, four people that they're kind of. Uh, investigate, kind of think did this crime. Um, she had a, she had a um, boyfriend when she met her friend, um, Sheila Waiyaski, Waisaki, um, which they were roommates, they were in the same college, uh, MSU, um, but Sheila was very not, she wasn't a party person. She was more about staying and studying and she also suffered from dyslexia and stuff like that. Um, so she's, when Angie apparently had invited her, she's like, no, I gotta study. I got, 
she was she said that she thought she was not even gonna pass, you know, not even get through college because of a dyslexia, her dyslexia was so bad. Um, yeah. And I wanna make sure I say this correctly, but there was um, three, three people off the bat that was, um, that they thought about. Her old boyfriend, um, Lance, that that was the boyfriend that she really didn't like. Um, her current boyfriend, um, Ben McCall, the guy that she went out with that night, um, Russell, Russell? Cannon, Russell. Um, and there was another one, but I can't remember the name. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, let me see. Um, I think it was like the majority of the time they did mention um, the ex-boyfriend because he did um, yeah. went and tried to assault her um, physically. And then if I'm right, um, there was one time where the altercation escalated to where he had a knife and he was threatening her. Um, and I think that's when the relationship ended and she ended up moving into that condo. Um, yes. With Ben. Oh, not with Ben, but with the help of Ben, if I remember correctly. Yeah. She got out of the school. With the breakup of Lance and him physically assaulting her, um, she got scared and moved into the the condo. Correct, I agree. Um, we cannot, we cannot, um, I have to mention, let me put it this way. I have to mention her best friend, um, Sheila Wykowski. She, um, they became friends after Lance. They became best friends after her break, um, Angie's breakup with Lance. Which, um, let me see, I wanna make sure I get this correct. Yeah, is it going into the thing? Give me one second. So anyway, um, I can't find the information, obviously. Um, her best friend, Sheila, was, um, didn't like Lance, and they broke up. They really became, had a cl really close bond. And um, she was one of the first people, you know, after Ben had called the cops and all that. Um, Ben had also called a couple of her friends. Um, Kadala was one of them. She, she was with her that night. And um, somebody let Sheila know, and her name was Barbara. I'm not sure how Barbara ties into her story. Either. I'm confused in that part. Yeah. Um, but basically, the way they tell Angie, Barbara tells Angie, She's crying. She's just crying, uncontrollably crying, uncontrollably crying, and doesn't doesn't tell her anything. Um, she called her by phone instead of going to her house, which is kind of weird. Um, 
Okay, and then um, Sheila says, Barbara, a friend of Angie and mine, she was crying. Through her crying, she had said that there was an accident. But Barbara kept crying, hysterical crying. So after a few minutes, she doesn't know why. She just said, is she dead? Um, and then she continues by going to, um, she had been raped and murdered. It was very violent, stabbing. It was horrific. Um, the, um, so when I read that, let me get back to what I'm trying to say. When I read that, I'm like, how do you tell somebody a best friend or a boyfriend, whatever the, whoever you tell, you just cry and cry and cry and cry but, and say it was an accident. You don't say, listen, I need, you know, or stop crying, then call the person and let them know what was going on. Um, then, so she goes on telling this, her story about how beautiful she was, how much of a life their party she was. Um, but as I'm trying to get to the end, the police were there. They helped Ben. They helped Ben. Um, they got. They, they found out what happened. Um, sorry, I got distracted. No, you're fine. So I got a question. Mm -hmm. Was there any um, DNA? Um, because to do the whole cutting, there has to be where the knife eventually gets so blood soaked. Um, you either cut yourself um, and with it being a rape, was there DNA from that? Okay. Um... So there was the blood stains on the bathroom, on the on the um, light switch, and the tub itself. There wasn't much blood. Um, the lack of blood. So um, this detective says the lack of blood um, in certain areas was consistent with the attacker's body being on top of Angie and blocking the transfer of blood to those areas. So there wasn't much, there wasn't much blood. Um, and I found out from one of the um, podcasts that the guy was a non-secretor, which if, if I understand the meaning of it, you cannot find blood DNA from his sperm. So, I may be wrong yeah. with that. I'm just saying that, but that's how I understood it. Okay. Yeah, so basically that's what it is. Um, it's very hard, especially at that time, it was very hard to be able to find um, the DNA match. So the un only unfortunate part is that if, say, there were, they had somebody else who was a uh, non-secreter, a non-secreter, um, they could also be pinned for this crime as well without mm -hmm. proper evidence. If we just went off of the DNA evidence, they'll be yes. like, okay, well, you did it too. You're, you know, um, was that an issue in this case? Yes. Um, 
Okay, so I get to the part where I want to go to. Um, the four people were, like I said, was Ben McCall, Russell Buchanan, Lance Johnson, which is the former boyfriend, then was the um, current boyfriend. Russell Buchanan was the person that um, was went out with them that night, and some guy named Joseph Barlow. Um, so yes, there was a there was an issue that the rapist was not a secretor, so they could not get DNA. Um, and because the person was not a secreta, it actually um, made the case harder. But out of the four people, weird enough, that was that the police were investigating, the only other non-secreter was Russell Buchanan. Russell Buchanan was the person that went out with them that night. He was an older guy, but Angie kind of connected with him in some way or, you know, some way. But, so Russell was not a non okay, So now so the investigation sense. goes directly, he must have done it. The, the, the probability of people, of men and women in general, being non secretors is low. Most people, you could tell their DNA by, from a rape kit and all that. The, we also got to remember that this was 1984. Yeah, so the DNA, um, right. well, the forensic profiling at that time was at its infancy. Um, it's not like how it is now that, you know, with even yeah. a drop of blood, we could be like, yep, that's what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and what was also weird in this case is that it was such an in its infancy that they didn't really collect it. It wasn't something that they, oh, we have DNA is coming up, you know, let's start getting rape kits and all that stuff. They tried to, um, they did it the old way because that was the only way they knew it, what we consider now to be the old way, you know, fingerprints, you know, things like that. Um, but luckily, they they had um, Angie's rape kit. They did that. They did in the fingernails. Like they had all the information the that we scenario. now use to get people in these types of crimes and murder. Um, yeah. So yeah. Okay. The, now, um. So, what did they yeah. do with the fact of knowing that? Russell was a non-secreter. Like, was he our guy or? It was so weird because they were, they were, um, they were close to him. Like they, he was the only person that were investigating him and all that. At that time, he was going to college in France. Oh shoot! And I'm pausing on purpose. They haven't arrested him. So he, being a decent human being, we're going to say at that moment, said, listen, I got a scholarship in France to a college in France. Can I go? One of the detectives says, you're not under arrest at this moment. You could do whatever you want. So he went to France. He was, I think it was because he was an architect, but he went to, a college to perfect this craft. I'm going to say it like that. 
and they let him go because they have enough evidence to keep him there. Um, with that happening, it's a cold case because the person that you think did it is off to France. But, yeah. You know, like they, they, they didn't have enough evidence to stop them and say, no, you're under arrest, you can't go nowhere. So, so um, how can I say it? This, before he went, before he went, he was talking about France, he was all that. The police talked to her friend. Sheila. Um, Sheila. Yeah. And basically told him that they think that they, they're 99.9% or whatever the percentage was, positive that Russell um, did it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, Sheila thinks Russell's the bad guy. He killed my best friend. He raped my best friend. Blah, blah, blah. You know. Um, <clears throat> and everything that Russell has said to the police in that investigation never wavered. He never changed anything. He never said it was sunny, then it was cloudy. You know, like everything he said, he kept saying. Yeah. The police got this uh, fantastic idea, or what they thought was a fantastic idea, to have Sheila talk to him. Oh. So they were kind of, they were friendly to each other, but they weren't friends, friends, like, like yeah. Angie and, and Russell were. So they kind of talked um, Sheila into having dinner with him and talk about the case. That's crazy. Crazy. Especially in 1984, like you don't think of anything, you know, so they're, they're desperately trying. They're really trying, but um, so let me go here. Um, So, <laughs> so just thinking about it, it's like she's she was very brave. Being honest, she was very brave. She she went to dinner with a possible the possible murder to her best friend, and to just have to you know play like nothing's going on. That is, I I swear, it takes strength. I would probably broke down and be like, why'd you kill her? You know, um, but definite strength goes towards her. Um, very, very passionate woman, I swear. <laughs> okay, so um, Sheila says, from what, she, um, from what I understood from the police, they believe that Russell Buchanan was the guy who had done it. He was, um, he was probably four or five years older than us. Um, not that much, but he was already established in his profession. He was an architect, and Angie realized that Russell would be a good connection. So that's how they basically hooked up in that connection with him being a um, an architect. Um, Angie was great at networking. Um, Russell was a shy guy, so she invited him to go out with her and another friend dancing that night. So that's how the connection was formed. Um, she said she continues to say one time I called the police to check in and I said I didn't know what it was about Russell, but he made me feel uncomfortable. Of course, what she didn't realize she was a shy 
um, dyslexic person, everyone made her feel uncomfortable. That's just, you know, that's her, that's the way she was. Um, so, Okay, so um, she says, I think I would have done just about anything to help. And with encouragement from the police, I started having conversation with Russell to ask him about the night to see, about that night to see if he told me something different than what he told them. And then we decided to go out to dinner. I remember my mom flipping out, but Russell came and picked me up and we went to a place called August Moon. Um, I was nervous and not acting like myself, thinking I'm sitting next to a murderer. Because of course, I thought he did it because the police said he did it. Afterwards, when I talked to the, de the detectives, I said, his story is the same as what he told me before, but they, had, uh, but they had him come down and take a lie detector test and kept bringing him down for interviews. Um, then I was told Russell had stopped co cooperating and then he had lawyered up. Um, she says back in Texas in the 80s, there was no real famous attorney called Richard, excuse me, there was this real famous attorney called Richard Racehorse Haynes. Um, if they got Racehorse Haynes, by God, you were guilty. At least this is what she's thinking. Um, so actually Russell got racehorse, um, hands. So of course he's guilty. So he lawyered up. Usually when you lawyer up, everybody thinks you got something to hide or you're guilty about something. Um, but there was no physical evidence and there, there could put, um, they could, there was no physical evidence that they could put on him and he was not charged. Um, so of course she was she had her curiosity about and was thinking who did it, who 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 they um how did they do it? We've got to um get the person, you know, all of that. Um she says that Angie's murder was the most traumatic event in her life, and you know, she was really shaken by by the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and That's, that's just so, got to be crazy. Yeah, the, 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 especially the, you have somebody that you think could have done it, but you got no evidence that he did it. It's, to me, it sounds like either the perfect crime or the police are inept in doing their jobs. One of the, they, he had to leave something somewhere. You know, now, of course, in our day, we think he must have left something on social media. He must have liked, you know, like, but they don't have that in 1984. So the chances of finding somebody with no evidence and a guy that's going to France, you're stuck. Where else are you? You know? Um, let me see. So this, according to what I found out, um, 
it turned into a cold case, a 20-year cold case. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I, I got it. Um, Sheila says, by 2004, 20 years after Angie was murdered, they moved to Tennessee. They had two kids. Like, Sheila's living her life, but at the same time, trying to figure out um, or trying to help the police in capturing the murder of her best friend. Yeah. Um, what was weird is um, throughout this, and when she met her husband and all that, she um, had a war room, what they call a war room. So they had the potential suspects. She yeah. had like everything on a wall, potential sus suspects, um, what could have happened. Uh, from what I read, there was like, uh, what's it called? Lines from point A, point B, you know, like she was in it. She was, she knew what she wanted, you know, like she could have been a detective. Um, let me see here. And didn't she eventually become um, yes. a private investigator? Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's exactly where I'm getting to. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 it's okay. Because I'm trying to find this. I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, so she was in her Bible study class, like what well, she called a Bible study class, but she was in her office desk, reading the Bible, praying. All of a sudden she sees Angie appear to her. Um, she says, so I was reading and then I remember looking to the right and there was Angie. I thought, am I dreaming? Am I asleep? What is there? There was no talking. It was just her and her great smile. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but I had a lot of faith. And I believe that there, there are messages. And at that moment, I thought, it's time. I learned over, I leaned over my nightstand and picked up the phone and called the Dallas Police Department, just like that. I said, can I talk to the cold case division? And they said, no, you have to talk to homicide. There was no um, designated cold case division. So I asked for the detective that I knew and left a message. He never returned my, my phone call. The guy knew me well, enough for me to invite him to my wedding, but he never called me back, ever. Over a period of time, I called probably 700 times and he blew me off. I'm a little, I'm a little bitter about that. Yeah. <laughs> she invited you to the wedding. Like, they were they became friends enough and knew each other enough to invite him to the wedding. But when she calls him, she don't pick up the phone. That's just seven hundred times, not like once or twice. Seven hundred times. Um but probably the most heartbreaking part of making all those calls was that they said that they that not one other person in 20 years had called thinking about that not what so it sounds like the she was like the main person um to keep angie's case alive right 
So she continues to say that she thought they should bring to go away. They brush her off. They only answer her calls. She'll just go away. Bye. You know. And she said most people would drop it and move on with their life, but I didn't. I thought there was something that just didn't feel right. And I just didn't take no for an answer, so I kept calling. Um, oh, this is where she did the research and printed out reports about all the rapes that had happened during that period, the locations, and who was arrested to try to figure out what had happened. Um, she lived in a gated community, and one day I was complaining to the head of security that the head of security there about the blown up um, constantly by the police. And he said, you know, you'll make a great great um, private investigator. Yeah. She says, I didn't hesitate. It was 2004 and in my, in my early 40s. And that's right. I told my husband that I was going to become a private investigator. To have the, the yeah, to have the, the tenacity to not let go, to call the police 700 times, to have, like I said, that war room of all the reports and pictures and all that, trying to figure out who killed the best friend. And by just hearing someone says, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be a great private investigator. Nobody says, okay, that's what I'm going to be. But Sheila did. So um, she did the test. She did everything she had to do. Um, She said, um, now that I have my private, in, private investigator license, I thought that the police would sit down and work with me. How stupid was I? They couldn't have cared less. So that even didn't work. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. You said something? Sammy, did you say something? No, I just said, wow. Yeah. Um, so she continues on to say, I knew that they had done a rape kit on Angie, but I've been told that the evidence had been lost in a flood. And now, how many years later, they have the evidence? Are you kidding me? I was flooded. So they told her they, they had a flood and they lost the evidence. But all of a sudden, the evidence shows up. So I go back to my point. It's either a, uh, a murder that the perfect murder or inept cops. Now I'm leading to inept cops. Because how you lose you lose a, your the evidence for her case in a flood supposedly, 20 years later it magically appears. So anyway. Um, so they had Angie's fingernails. So she obviously fought back which is DNA, they had yeah. semen DNA. Okay. So yeah, 1984 DNA was in its infancy, but more than 20 years later, it was already a powerful forensic tool. This is a process you have to go through. However, and the police department at that time had to do a request. That was probably 2008, and we got the test results in 2009. These cases are not quick. Yeah, it's already been 20 some odd years now. Um, I picked up the phone and, and it was a female detective and she said, 
we got them. So did they uh, get really, like Russell? Patience. <laughs> um, I was waiting for her to say we got Russell Buchanan. The one I knew did it because they told me he did it. So when she said the name, I went through the Rolodex in my head going, wait a minute, I don't know that name. Um, I call him the beast. He was a serial rapist out of parole when Andrew was raped and murdered. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. How do you, okay. He was a serial rapist out on yes. parole. Yes. Should those two words, well, actually, should that no. be together? No. No. Um, this was his forte. He, he, his main thing was raping women. He was mm -hmm. a serial rapist. How he got on parole, I just can't explain. But God love the system, right? Yeah. I mean, if I say like this, if I had done something like that, I would be rotting in jail or probably dead by now. But he gets on parole. I don't know how you get on parole on serial rapist. But anyway, um, she says. The case boiled down to physical evidence, the DNA which matched the beast, the advancement of science since her murder made his connection possible. Uh, it, it went to trial 650 miles away. So the beast, as she calls him, his name is Donald Andrew Best Jr. Um, he looks like, anyway, I'm not even gonna, he <laughs> looks like a beast. He really does look like a beast. She, yeah. Um, and not a beast from the Disney movies. No, like a beast that you never want to, like, if he's on one side of the street, you want to cross the street and get far away from him type of beast. Um, so they got him on DNA evidence 28 years later. If my math is correct. Well, yeah. No, in, yeah. Go ahead. No, 2009. So 29 years later after 84, 25, 25 years later. Yeah, 25 years later. Um, so the case boiled down to physical evidence of DNA, which matched this guy named Donald Andrew Bass. Um, the advancement of science since a murder made his conviction possible. I went to the trial 650 miles away in Dallas to see Angie get justice. And now he's off the street. I'm thinking he's rotting in jail with the life sentence. It's okay with me, but it doesn't change anything. She's still dead. <clears throat> well, the, oh God. no, go no, ahead. Go ahead. I want to hear you. I want to hear what you got to say. So, first of all, like I said, um, I just looked it up. He was actually paroled back in March. Let me just let me rewind. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
So he was paroled back in March 23rd of 1984. The crime happened October 13th of 1984. Now, those, yeah, that's a couple of months apart. But the thing is, if you, one, why would you let somebody who raped over and over, okay, on parole, right. Right. you know, then um, the other thing is, if he would have stayed in jail, okay, like most serial rapists nowadays are to stay in jail, um, or even being had like an ankle bracelet or something just to track his movements, I feel Angie would still be alive today. Well, yeah. But yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. He was a like, he was a serial rapist. You don't let those people out on parole. No. In general, you just don't they, he's a serial rapist. It took him less than two months to um rape and kill her. As far as, as what I found out was he worked with her in that supermarket mini mart whatever that place that she worked and she he really um was fond of her but since she was um going to school she was talking to a friend of hers at work about missing a book or two for you know for her studies and he said well i have i have those books that you need and that's how they kind of met up after some advancement that she he's trying to get with her, she blows him up. He's he's he wasn't young at the time. His his um arrest I pictures think were in not thirties. Right, and she's she's in her early twenties, mm-hmm. just in you know. So it's not something like you know uh, what you call it. She's actually twenty years old. Who? Angie, um, because she was born in September 19th, 1964, and then her death being October 13th, 1984, she was 20 years old. Um, She was only a month, um, basically, she got to live up being 20, 20, which is sad, you know. The The weird thing for me, Mm-hmm. And that, and I say weird because they basically told um, Sheila, her best friend, that Russell committed this murder. She mm-hmm. had thought of Russell as the as the the worst guy on earth, and it wasn't even Russell. What surprised me at the end was, oh, I don't have no ill feelings towards the police. I know that they were doing their job. Um, and I'm like, I would be so upset. I've been had this thing on the back of my neck, thinking that I was going to get arrested for 25 years. And there's like, oh, sorry, it wasn't you. We found out who did it. And, and, I, and it, uh, it's frustrating. Yeah. You know? And the way he just let it go is, I understand they were just doing their job. And I don't have no ill, Ill feelings towards Sheila. 
Because if that was my best friend, I would feel the same way. And I'm like, this has to be the most charmingest guy ever. And he was so like, like he was shy, but he was cool about it. You know, he was, and I'm like, how can you be that cool after 25 years of everyone thinking you were it, you were the murderer? Like Sheila said, when exactly. she, when the, when that, it was a rookie um, detective that was, that was giving her first case at the time of DNA that figured this out that when she called when she called Sheila said we got him, she was expecting to hear Russell Buchanan because that's it was ingrained in her that it was her, it was him that did it. And it wasn't him at all. Um my thing is as a friend, I think listen, I want that type of person as my friend who is oh, yeah. happens to me is gonna be like, I ain't letting this go. You might have let it go but I'm not. So kudos to, to her. Um, when it comes to Russell, I do feel so much like, dude, be angry, scream, Mm -hmm. holler, you know, put up a fight. Yeah. But he has so much restraint and he's, his, his theory is, you know what? They were just doing their job. Okay, granted, yes, they were just doing their job because you were the only non um, secretor that they that they knew of. But if they would have opened up the circle of who they were looking at, like don't just look at her close friends. You know, look at people who she worked with. You know, he might this. Donna might have been a more quicker uh, option if I feel like if they would have looked at everybody that she worked with one you know as well as I do as well as everybody else in the world if you work in a fast food chain or if you work in um, a grocery store gossip is there (laughs) you know yeah Um, somebody would have noticed that Donald had some eye towards um angie and they would have went and said hey um you know that donald guy you know that works in over there he he he'd be looking at angie you know yeah you might want to talk to him and i feel like that would have pointed them in another avenue they would have took his dna test as well you know And it would have brought up that he, one, is a non-secreter as well. And it would have brought up that he has a background of raping people. Granted, at that time, he didn't have the background of killing, but he had the background of raping. So they could have went and looked at how he raped other females and see Mm -hmm. if there was a connection between the two. You know, maybe saying he needs to use the bathroom and if he could use the phone was his rule to get the girls to let him in you know yeah Yeah. they would have been able to do more work if they opened up their search area and not just closed in to one person particular you know yeah it's it's so it's so weird and and so upsetting honestly that um you can 
you have the tools, even though the times were not perfect, but you have the tools to do an actual um, research and actually you're a detective. Don't tell me you don't got no resources to kind of open up. Oh, he's a non-security, it must have been him. And we're done, you know, and then let that get it. Like you, there was no other possible person that could have done it in the same town as her that was working at the same place as her. Like, to me, the detectives failed Angie so badly, just so badly. And again, we're, this is 1984. Understand. I understand that. But I think they could have done more. I really do. They could have done yeah. so much more. You know. And then, of course, the Russell thing is like 25 years of thinking they were coming for him. And he wasn't in it at all. It's, it's crazy. Well, I definitely hope that the Samato family have their, their closure that is needed in this case. Um, Sheila keeps doing what she does best, which is, you know, sticking to <laughs> anything that doesn't feel right to her. Um, mm -hmm. And when it comes to Russell, I hope, you know, that cloud is finally off his shoulder. He's living yeah. prosperous. Um, and when it comes oh, to yeah. Donald, I hope he rots. Like, seriously, yeah. just rots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a couple of final points. Sheila was going to give up her private investigating license because she only got it to solve this one case. She was only doing it for Angie. She got so many people, letters and whatnot, that needed help, that needed her help because she was so passionate about it that she kept it. She's still a private investigator. Um, Russell Buchanan has, is the best uh, architect in the world. He's in the... He has like small houses, but they're kind of famous. And he's he's been in uh, Architect Magazine and all kinds of stuff. So thankfully, that whole thing didn't crumble because of this investigation. And he's still very prosperous. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 just a, it's just a, I, I and it's it's such a different time. So I can't even understand, you know, like why they didn't do more. But at the same time, they were kind of handcuffed by no DNA evidence, no, they couldn't do anything with the rape kit. I'm surprised they even did the rape kit, honestly, so, you know. Yeah. Thankfully, thankfully they did it because he would have gone away with murder. That is for sure. He got, he got a couple of years with freedom, 20, 20 some years, um, but great, tongue-tied, <laughs> with the grace um he is behind bars, not able to do this to another female. Um, he's waiting execution, supposedly. I don't know why they haven't killed him yet, honestly. See, this is the thing, is that every time somebody is sent to be executed, it takes forever. Yes. But the guys that you're like, dude, I have a feeling he's innocent. Don't do it. Let me you know, call somebody, make the calls to go and not get this done. Those are the quickest executions you can ever imagine. Yeah, yeah so true, so true. But the guys it's, who are well deserving of the of being put out, yeah, are like, mm, yeah. like a time, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
And yeah. granted, I'm not for the execution. I don't. I don't feel we should be making that decision. But what I do feel is that if you think you have the right to take somebody else's life, it you should be open minded to the fact that it's going to happen to you. Yeah. And not by when nature decides. You know. I guess I'm I'm cold-hearted in that point because I'm like. I don't want to spend tax money on a person living their best life in jail, getting educated and all that, while he should have been executed like a few years ago. So we differ in that opinion. <laughs> no, I agree that in this case, yeah. he deserves the execution. Oh, yeah. Like Absolutely. the way he did to her, yes. Give it yeah. to him now. Don't give him an easy death. Please do not yeah. give him easy death. No. You know, give him the most Listen, can we bring back the electric chair? <laughs> Make him feel what it is to have pain before yeah. you see no lights, you know? Um, yeah, majority me, of the time, I am against it, but in this case, yeah. I'm all for it. Yeah, to me, uh, an injection shot in the arm is not enough. He didn't do I, that to uh, Angie, so, you know... <laughs> Exactly. He didn't give her an easy, you know, right. death. Um, it was horrible, you know, and yeah. who knows when was, what was the final blow for her where she couldn't do anymore, you know, right. where she was already gone. You know, she yeah. endured the rape and then she had to endure, you know, how many stabbings before her body said, let go. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was a few, I, 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 if I remember correctly, I think it was three. I think the third one was the final one. Was the uh, killing one, but he kept going. Six. Yeah. Yeah. Six. Yeah. And that was so, the case of NG Samad. <laughs> yes. Um, unfortunately, it was a heavy one. Too heavy. Um, but hopefully our next case won't be as heavy. No guarantees. Um, if you have anything you wanted to say to us, you can definitely go ahead and let us know. Um, if you ever wanted to participate in one of our um, Zoom podcasts that we're having, um, definitely email us. Um, you can email us and let us know um, if you want to participate. Leave us some comments on any cases you want to particularly hear, yes. and then follow along with us, you know, and show some love if you want. <laughs> but we will see you guys back again on Saturday and let you know what case we're going to be working on then. Yeah, I'm Samantha. Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. And I'm in you out. And this was Discussing True Crimes. Bye. Bye-bye.